Welcome to Mind Rewind, a voyage through mental health journeys by those with the courage and desire to share their experiences with you. Through the insight and lived experience of others, you may find the tools and strategies that could benefit you and the strength to reach out for support. Listen and you'll hear messages of hope and that there is no obstacle that cannot be overcome when there is a willingness and bravery to tackle your challenges. Just a warning that some of the content of this story may be confronting for some listeners. If you or someone you know needs crisis support, speak with someone today. Please phone Lifeline on 13 11 14. Hi, everyone. You're listening to Mind Rewind. I'm Jack Payne, and today I've got Tor joining us to chat about her mental health journey. And Tor, as I think I've just said to you, I can't remember your story, which is really, actually, it's really helpful. So what I think we might do is start from where you're at today. That's always a good starting point, and then we can rewind and go backwards and hear about the journey to get there. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Well, I am a counsellor at the moment. And I'm studying my Masters of Social Work as well in South Australia. So quite busy. Absolutely. And I'm also a teacher. So I'm juggling all three at the moment, which is fun, but very exhausting. What are you teaching? I teach primary school. (gasps) Little ones. Yeah, little guys. They're beautiful. And I've worked in the country and northern suburbs of Adelaide. So lots of challenges, lots of trauma and, you know, lots of neglect and abuse and that sort of stuff. So that's where it sort of led me to this counselling journey because I thought as a teacher there's not much support for them. And in the classroom you're worrying about them reading and writing and sitting and not talking and, you know, conforming almost. And now... I just realized that there's more to it. There's more to school than just learning about curriculum. It's about building up people, like confident little people who know that they are going to be okay and giving them the skills to survive in life in like a well-being mental health scene. I'm really curious about that, actually, because I, I deal with a lot of adolescents and, and yeah. young adults, but not so many in the primary school sector. You know, you're on the ground. What do schools offer in terms of sort of social emotional learning is it part of curriculum it is definitely but I think the education for the teachers is not quite there so you're teaching you know you have your child protection curriculum for example and teachers teach it but do they really understand the importance of it I'm not sure and they understand the language that they use in everyday life and how that can impact children who have come from you know, challenging and vulnerable backgrounds. So I think as a whole, teachers are absolutely worn thin in every aspect and to expect them to then go and learn about social, emotional wellbeing is, yeah, it's just not possible and feasible, I think. So it's not a teacher problem. I think it stems from higher because there's that lack of understanding that if you're not feeling good in your wellbeing, then you're not going to be learning. It's simple as that. And I've been working really hard to try and get schools to understand that. And the school I was at last year out in the country were amazing at being like, okay, so what do we need to do? So there's lots of people that are trying to do the right thing and they want to help because they see that, you know, if a child comes in and they've experienced, that they've witnessed domestic violence in the morning, which is really, really common, then what do we do? Because we can't just say, okay, now read to me and do your sounds and do your maths and all that, that they need to actually be regulated and their nervous system needs to be at a point where they can function and listen. And yeah, so some schools are really trying to harness those things, but 
yeah, I think it's hard for teachers because their job is impossible already. I agree. They're hugely yeah. overwhelmed. But it's really interesting listening to you, what you're kind of describing is reactive stuff, is that yeah, when very. people have experienced DV or, you know, other really challenging situations in a family yeah. home, what I'm not hearing is little people who lack confidence, who lack resilience, who struggle socially to chat and become embedded in friendship groups. And and I actually see the results of that when they're 13, 14 and 15. And I go, Absolutely. why are we not teaching these kids mm-hmm. at, a, at a really young age when we've got them and they're not cynical and are still yeah. prepared to listen to the grown-ups? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that it seems to be a real missing link. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And the school I was at last year, they have a lot of challenges. They're a Category 2 school, so I'm not okay. sure if you know what no, that means. please but explain first so I can understand it. I think, I don't know if it's nationwide, but in SA we have Category 1 to 7. So 7, it's based on parental income and, you know, that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. So a 7 is the highest category school you can have. So the schools that people, like, it's quite desirable to go there. And then you have Category 1, which you have quite tough families and, you know, that generational trauma and Mm. um, generational unemployment and that sort of stuff. So I was at Category 2 school, which is down the lower end. And so my principal was absolutely incredible. And I said to her, like, I don't want to be a teacher anymore. And I think her heart broke a bit. She was like, no. But I said, but you could really use with a school counsellor. So because we were in the country and my principal just backed me, 200% we created a school counsellor role which isn't that common in schools over here so I was managing student well-being so but working one-on-one with kids working through like lots of play therapy and working through trauma and then also running sessions for staff around trauma and anxiety and how to respond to really big emotions because we had lots of kids you know as you can imagine you've been through traumatic events and they're flipping chairs and screaming and really dysregulated and you're not taught at teacher college or uni how to manage that and that's the number one thing if you can't manage that you're not going to be able to run a classroom so my principal backed me and let me pretty much have free reign last year and yeah it was just amazing what a fantastic opportunity yeah so tell me, you know, you're obviously fabulous at what you do in the <laughs> teaching and you really, and you obviously really love it and are connected to it, but yeah. you've decided to move into the counselling world. Yeah. Okay, what kind of spurred that on for you? Yeah, definitely what I'd been through in my past, which I'm sure we'll get to, yes. that has definitely paved the way for where I am now. But yeah, just being in the classroom and I remember last year, uh, sorry, two years ago, I had a little girl screaming under the table in term one and she's five and her mum had just recently taken up drugs, which was quite common in the area. And the dad was beside himself because he was like, I didn't have kids to be a sole parent. I'm not a mum. I don't know. I'm not maternal or paternal. And he was in crisis, which of course then links into the children because they're all dysregulated as well. Mm. And she was screaming underneath the table and I just felt pain like in my chest that I wanted to be that person under the table with her. But I was the teacher sitting at the front. I was co-regulating the students while we were in there, but I was still trying to teach a sounds lesson. And what does this sound mean? And what's the action? And I was like, this is just not lining up with who I am and who I want to be. I want to be on the ground under that table, you know, rubbing her back or talking calmly or just being there, like saying nothing and just being in that pain that she was in and I couldn't. And that was when I was like, no, I need to change what I'm doing. 
and had to teach the rest of the year, which was challenging <laughs> when you change because I'm like, I've changed my mind. I want to run with that now. Yeah. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Okay, yeah. so you, you wanted to join her under the table, and I totally yeah. understand when you express yeah. it like that. Yeah, you you obviously are hugely empathic, which is, we all are yeah. in the field. So you yeah. know, wonder you wanted to climb under there with her. What was it about that situation, and is there any connection to what that little girl was experiencing that maybe triggered stuff of your own past? Yeah, I just feel like although I wasn't five when the stuff that happened with me went on, I felt like I know that feeling when you're under there and you're isolated and I was assuming that she just wanted love and connection, which is, you know, that's where the research says it is. They just want to be heard and cared for and even adults feel that and I've as an adult felt that way as well. So I was just thinking she doesn't need me to call the office and get, you know, the scary leadership team to come in. She needs me who I've got the relationship with under that table, but I just was not in a position to leave the other 25-year-olds who were crazy first few weeks of school to go under there. So it definitely triggered something in me, but it triggered like the kindness and warmth that I was like, I know what you need and I want to give it to you. And the fact that I couldn't, that was really really challenging like I think I went home and cried to my partner oh. I was like Nick I can't do this it's not who I am it just doesn't line up anymore with who I want to be and who I am you'll never forget that little five-year-old no <laughs> <laughs> never <laughs> she's kind of changed paths for you yeah. let's talk a little about your own story and where yeah. would you like to start with that yeah so I wanted to say too that sharing my story is it's really healing, but it's also really challenging too, like nerve-wracking. I feel really nervous in my tummy. because, Yeah, because, you know, when you've gone through what I've been through and so many other people have, it's hard to share your story. And even though I feel that I'm on the other side of it, there's still ramifications for the stuff that you go through as a child. And, you know, this is my story and my truth and my version of events of what's happened. So, yeah, I'm, I feel that it's important for victims not to be silenced and I have felt quite silenced for okay. whatever reason in the past. So, yeah. Okay. I, I honour your nerves. I totally understand. <laughs> Thank that, you. And, and I would expect you to feel that way. Yeah. Are you okay? <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Okay. Where do we start with it? So I think Maybe it's helpful to start just from my childhood. Mm. I had the best upbringing. We live in a suburb in South Australia that's, you know, close to the beach and close to the city and just beautiful. And my parents, when we were younger, like they're, my mum's a teacher and she's just beautiful, like just the best person. She's kind and empathetic and supportive and non-judgmental. And then my dad's a fireman, so he, you know, in the helping profession again. Absolutely. So not surprised that I've ended up here as well. <laughs> and he's patient and passionate and like loves unconditionally. So I had the best upbringing and I've got two brothers who are younger than me. So I always felt a bit protective mm. of them as well. And they're beautiful people as well. So I felt like between the ages of like birth and 10, I was in this bubble and it was like a beautiful bubble and where I felt like everyone was safe and kind. People wanted the best for you and they helped you get there. And they're like the values that and the core beliefs that I had at the time that mum and dad instilled in us. And it was just beautiful. Like we had things that were happening throughout the time. So it wasn't a perfect life, but it felt perfect for me as a child because I had that unconditional support. 
It sounded pretty perfect in terms of what yeah, a child needs, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. And particularly having worked like last year as a school counsellor and with adults, knowing what people go through in those early years, oh, God, my life was the best. Pretty like, idyllic. It's just amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I'm sensing a but. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, yeah, when I was about nine, my parents separated. But even though that was sad and challenging at the time again we had the unconditional support from mum and dad they are still good friends they are on the same page they co-parented even though that was separate so again just so grateful and lucky that yeah that's, that's really, really fortunate I, I agree yeah. it is uncommon so lovely yeah. that your parents continued that parenting journey together and didn't absolutely have you as a little pawn in the game absolutely yeah and I know how damaging that is for people because I work with people that are still coming and working through that sort of stuff so for me no it was just so lucky and even though it was hard because obviously like you'd pack your bag and you'd go to and from places that and it's really difficult yeah but we still had birthdays together like mum and dad were very amicable and friendly so we'd have cake and everyone would be there so for me oh, it was fabulous. just yeah amazing and very lucky and then my mum met my stepdad who I feel emotional when I talk about him because he's just amazing. He's just like my mum and dad, like just the best person in the world and, again, loved us unconditionally even though we weren't his you know, biological So you've got a children. bonus parent in the mix as well. Yes. You really were <laughs> yeah. lucky. I'm not, I'm not sure there is a but. <laughs> yeah, well, there is. <laughs> yeah, so like things were still going on in our lives like me and my brother's lives that were still hard to manage like having a new parent in the picture mm. is challenging because you know you're grappling with is that my new dad do I still have my other dad and so it's still challenging but because we had the support from now mum dad and my stepdad it was really made easy so then about when I was 13 another person came into our lives okay. and in that parental role and I felt like I had this bubble that was really secure and although it would deflate at times a little bit and then pump back up, I had so much love and support around me and I had those values of like being respectful, being kind, listening to other people, you know, validating your own feelings and other people. So a really nice secure bubble with great attachments and then this person came along and it was like this big pin that just pricked it all. So Okay, that's a pretty big yeah. impact. Yeah, massive impact. And it felt almost like that's how I can describe it. It was like my world was great. And again, it had its challenges throughout, but it wasn't traumatic in any way. And then this person came in and caused a lot of pain for me and my brothers. And yeah, so that's sort of where the trauma side of it starts because it was such a flip from one extreme. I had like a beautiful life with all these core beliefs where I honestly felt like people wanted the best for you and that they were kind and they'd support you. And then I was exposed to the opposite end of the spectrum where, yeah, those values, I realized everyone doesn't possess those values or those character traits that I had been exposed to. And of course, being in a bubble was naive, like eventually it was going to come sure. down a little bit. But it was, yeah, I would have rather been at a workplace and someone be, you know, not as friendly and, you know, all that sort of stuff and being able to remove myself from that. Or like, you know, if you have a friend that's not quite a good friend, you can remove yourself. Whereas I was stuck in this situation and there was no removing and 
yeah, it was really damaging and traumatic. So you were this this situation began, if I'm hearing you right, at about sort of cusp of moving into adolescence as well, which is yes. complicated enough, you know, on its own without yes. layers of issues surrounding it. So absolutely, yeah. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So exactly what you say, that's how I felt because I was going into teenage years, which are already so chaotic. Like I thought I had my values and beliefs pretty firm. Like I was quite strong on them, but then you move into adolescence. And even if you have a less rocky path in adolescence, it's you're still working out what do I need to do to fit in and how can I be cool and will this person like me? Or you're sort of questioning what type of person you are in order to fit into the world that you're in. Absolutely. So, and that's the job of the adolescent. Yeah, but, you know, absolutely. As you say, it's hard enough to do that when, yeah. you're, when you've got a stable baseline, but your baseline suddenly became really wobbly. It did. And I remember my grandma, I was complaining to my grandma when I was in maybe year 11 and I was like, I just hate this age. I hate all that it has to offer. I don't like that. I don't know who I am. And And my grandma said, I said to her, like, this should be the best years of my life, which is what everyone says, you know, you, you know, you get into your um, early 20s and it's the best. And she was like, no, your 30s are because you, excuse my French, but you cut the bullshit. Like, you don't care what people think. Correct. You are, yeah, hopefully grounded in yourself and you believe that who you are is good enough for you and the people you love and anyone else, well, it doesn't matter. I, I agree yeah. with your grandmother. <laughs> yes, she's very it, comes, wise. it definitely comes a little bit later. I definitely think yeah. teen angst is a is a descriptor for a reason, and it definitely yes. exists. Take us back Absolutely. to the the person that and we don't need to know who it is or or yep. how they came to be, but that person that came into your life that that destabilized what yep. you described, you know, in the first kind of twelve years as so stable. Yeah, what happened, and what did you experience? And you can tell us in really general terms and how was it for you? Yeah, I feel like it's not helpful to go into the gory details, but it was definitely emotional and at times physical abuse. And I think the biggest challenge at the time was not having the understanding of what that meant. And I'm such a big believer in my counselling practice now about the body and where it stores everything that goes on. And I felt it in my body. I knew that what the treatment that we were being put through was not okay, but I didn't have the language to articulate oh, this is emotional abuse. And so when I think back in terms of reaching out, I didn't have the capacity or the understanding to say, I'm going through emotional abuse because of these things that are happening and help me. I didn't know on a cognitive level how to describe that. And my body was telling me like if I could express how my stomach was feeling, it was in knots for six or seven years straight. It was just an awful feeling because my body was like, Tor, you're not, this is not okay and you're not safe and what's happening to you is not, you know, essentially legal. And I didn't know, I didn't know how to connect with that interception of my body. So I think that was the biggest impact because not only were all my beliefs shattered into a million pieces, I then couldn't trust my body because I didn't, my body and my head were on different pages because I was constantly being fed. You need a change. You're not good enough. If only you did X, Y, and Z, then this wouldn't have happened. And as a child, it's really hard to comprehend that maybe it's not your fault. And 
Oh, kids, kids will absolutely yes. defer to it is my fault. Yeah. yeah, and I felt that. I felt that if I only did what this person said I should do, it would be okay, but then I would follow those rules and it still wasn't okay and I was still mistreated. So for me, it was this like it felt like a bit of a turmoil because I'm like, I don't know what I can do to be good enough. And that's where the I'm not good enough story, I call it, comes in because it cemented itself deep into my gut and it sat there and it's still there, if I'm honest. At times I'm still like I grapple with it and I feel like I manage it a lot better definitely because I've got the skills and worked really hard. But it's in there that if, you know, I have – an interaction with someone at work and something goes wrong, instead of being like, oh, no, that's okay, it's a minor problem, I go straight to, oh, you're not, not in the stomach. Yeah. Yeah. That's really challenging when you're young because I didn't know. Like now I can articulate it 100% and talk about it as much as you need, but then you don't have the language and understanding. You can't make meaning of it. I'm curious to know yeah. whether you could link what you were feeling physically to what you were actually experiencing or was it too difficult? to join them together? At first I did because I was like, this is not right. This is so foreign to me and my body. I was not used to any of it. So at first I knew that this was wrong and it wasn't good. And then in the middle of it, it was like I was too far gone. It was a massive disconnection and almost a dissociation to what was going on, to what I was feeling, to what I felt like should have been happening. And then towards the end, I started seeing a psych, which we can go into later if you want, and I had the language. So then I was almost angry and I'm like, hang on a second, this is what I've been through and it's not okay to treat children like this. So, yeah, it was a bit of everything at different stages. What did it look like or how did it manifest in your adolescent life? So I'm thinking of, you know, you've got this permanent knot in your stomach. You've got a feeling that I'm not safe, that I'm not worthy, that I'm not enough. And you're kind of in a development stage where academically you start to come under pressure, you know, schools start talking about what do you want to do when you're finished. And you've got friends that you're trying to work out, well, do I fit in? Are these a good fit for me? You know, how did the experience and the knot in the stomach then play out in all the other aspects of your life? Yeah, it's a good question in lots of different ways. I think the big one for me was I always trusted my gut. I really believe in that. Even as a little girl, I felt like I knew when things were right or wrong and I lost that connection between trusting my instinct and not. So when I finished school, I wanted always to be a teacher because mum was, but then I didn't get a score that I was like, I deserve to be a teacher so that I'm not good enough story comes up again. And I ended up going and doing nursing. So I didn't trust my gut just to do what I wanted to do. I was quite flippant in my responses. So that was challenging because now I trust my gut a hundred percent. And like an example on Tuesday, I was like, I think I need to sell one of the properties that we have. And by Thursday it's on the market because I just trust my whole being that I know what's right. And yeah, but I lost that. And that's really challenging because that was one of the things that I liked about myself because I was really connected to what I felt was the right choice. And so that really had an impact. But then also even in terms of like when you're in a teenager, you people are drinking and going out mm. and I was never, I'm such a nana, I always have been, so I'm never one to go and party, but there was that peer pressure to be cool and do that and I also felt like my life at the time was so out of control because I had no control over 
anything in that house that I didn't want to drink because I wanted to be in control the whole time and I didn't want to do anything that would put me out of that state where I felt like I was still in control. So, I mean, looking back, potentially I might have missed out on some fun experiences because I had to be in, in that control, control to feel safe. Yeah. yeah. Where were your friends in all this? Did they know what was going on? Did they feel a shift or a change in you? Yeah, they were actually, they witnessed a lot of it as well, particularly my cousin. She's like my soul sister and she was in the house for a lot of the stuff. So she absolutely understood where I was coming from. But again, she's the same age as me. So we didn't know where to go for help or how to express it. And so I felt like I told my friends bits and pieces and it was, it sounds bad, but it was laughable. So the stuff that I was going through, they would laugh at because it was so disgustingly absurd that it was funny for them and I remember thinking like this isn't funny this is my life it's not funny to live it yeah yeah you get to go home and be with your safe people and I've got someone that's intentionally causing pain for me and so I vividly remember that thought but they were still there like if I needed to be upset about it or talk about it they they really listened and yeah, I feel guilt for the people that were part of it because they've been victim to it as well. And obviously it's not ongoing like mine and my brothers were, but they were part of it. And it's traumatizing for them coming from a safe family and experiencing what we were living through. But they were definitely in my corner. But I felt too like I didn't reach out to people because I sort of like gave them a little bit, like a drip fed little bits that were happening to sort of see like, are you going to believe me? Because it was a definite thing of a child versus an adult. And, you know, people were saying, you're just upset because it's another parental figure in your life and you don't want that. And I'm like, it's not because my stepdad is my favorite person. I was going to say, so, you'd already had an experience and it was pretty wonderful. So you certainly yeah. weren't concerned about that. Yeah. And I'm very passionate about lots of things lately and these days, but one of them is not telling people why they feel something or how they feel. Because for me, that minimized it. And I don't think the intention was to minimize how I was feeling, but for the sake of keeping the family together in that unit and it was like, oh, we'll just try different things or don't do this or, you know, cook, clean, do the gardening, do absolutely everything to keep this person happy. And, you know, you do all that and it still wasn't enough. And people didn't understand what we were going through because it's hard to express because you don't know, Jack. You don't know in the moment that these things are wrong. Absolutely not. And people outside of it can't fathom that it actually yeah. happens the way you tell it in terms yeah. of your experience. Like, well, yeah. you might be exaggerating or maybe you're reading between the lines or, yeah. or whatever it might be, which then ends up feeling like you start going, is it me? Yes. And that's exactly what I felt. I feel like it was my fault that these things happened. And I know on a cognitive level, it's absolutely not my fault. And if you came to me, Jack, and said, this stuff happened to me and I'm a victim, I would say, Jack, it's not your fault. And we'd explore that. But for me, in a body sense, I had that felt sense that I could have just done more because that's what I was fed for six years. You're not enough. You need to do more. You believed the advertising. Yeah. Yeah. What about, I'm curious around these other fabulous grown-ups in your life that you had where you did feel so safe and stable. Where were they when this was happening? Yeah, so mum and my stepdad were there, but it's that awkward situation where mum doesn't want to intrude on 
the other part of the family because it's their life. And I know her biggest regret now is that she didn't stand up for us because there were times where stuff was really serious, what was going on, and she was really torn between protecting us, which is always done, and not overstepping the line with the way that her and dad had parented us and like had that relationship. So there's no blame at all. No, in there. no, like, no, I feel some, no blame, we're just but holding boundaries does. to some extent. Yeah, so they were there in terms of if we needed like a crisis night away or like we'd been you know kicked out or anything, mum and my stepdad were there. And for my dad, and I don't think I spoke to him about this and he said he doesn't mind me sharing because it's our story, but you're in the thick of it. When you're with people with this personality type, you are groomed firstly, but also love bombed and blindsided by what's actually happening. So again, I feel no pain towards my dad in that sense, because at times I did think like, you didn't protect me, dad, when I needed you, you weren't there. And that was really hard to grapple with and something I worked really hard in my counseling sessions because I didn't want to feel that for dad because he's a beautiful person. And I understood as a mature person why he couldn't intervene at different times. But as a child, as little tour, 13 year old tour, who's still in there, her, it was, yeah, really sad. So they're sort of the things that I've worked on and my, my family were there for me, but it's it was hard for them to intervene. Okay. And I get that. And I, it's beautiful that kind of adult you can respect that and understand yeah. the complexities that when we've got, you know, wider family networks that people don't want to interfere yeah. and whatever. But as you rightly say, when you're in it, the experience is different. I think, you know, it's it's easy for us as therapists to some extent to be helicopter view out over the top going, oh, you know, did, yeah. did you realise this is happening? But you actually don't when you're living it, yeah. not to the same extent. So, And that goes for the grown-ups in your life as much as it does for you. It does. And even grown-ups aren't aware of this abuse and like the different labels of it because if I had been punched in the face and gone to the police, it's evidence, it's there, it happened, no one can deny it. But this subtle coercive control, the emotional abuse is so subtle that you can't prove it. And we ended in court at some stage and I was so petrified and in the court, it was the worst day of my life. Out of everything that I'd experienced, that was the worst because the Why was it the worst? The courts just don't get it. They didn't get that I was a victim and there's a victim and a a perpetrator, Perpetrator. shall we say. Mm. And yeah, that the things I was saying, because I had no physical evidence, like the stuff I was saying was what I felt and what I experienced and they, it wasn't valid in the court in court, eyes. because and they just want facts. They do. And it's really hard when you have someone standing up there who is by nature quite manipulative, shall I say, in nice terms. And I'm a young person, emotional on the stand, saying mm. this is what happened. And yeah, so I feel really strongly about victims being validated. And even though, you know, this is my version of events and my story and there's truth, I'm sure there's truth in it for me, but things there's truth in it for the other person, you know. So I'm very aware that there's two sides to what happens in events, but you have to believe victims. Otherwise, it has such a effect on people's well-being and their perception of the world and themselves. Well, just the ability to trust in systems to help and support them. And, I, uh, you know, yeah. I've been in this game a long time now and I've heard a lot of stories from young people who've gone – to the court system or, or at least approach the law to try and help sort out something that's really serious. And ultimately they become the one on trial. Yeah, and I find I that like. I find that deeply saddening. 
Yeah, I remember being in there and saying like, I lost my cool, absolutely. And I think I was 20 maybe, so I was still young. And I was like, I am not the person that's done the wrong thing. Like, you're making me feel like yeah. I'm a murderer. And I am literally just a child victim of this person's behavior. And you can't see that. And it was just guttering. Like, it wrecked me because I was like, I can't believe that I'm being so brave and strong and coming out and saying this stuff. And, like, sharing your story is tough because you know, along the way, people discredit you and they don't validate what you're saying. So to go into an institution where you want the right outcome to happen and people not believe you, it just, it's the re-traumatizing. Oh, like absolutely. I felt like you I just relive the whole back. thing again yeah. and, and no one's listening. Yeah. Given the beaming smile I'm sitting opposite today on a screen <laughs> <Yes>. and, <laughs> and, you know, someone who can articulate what happened so beautifully, yeah. You've obviously had help to get there. What help landed with you? Did you go out seeking it? Did someone recognize there was a problem? What have been the things that have gotten you to where you are now? Yeah, my mum and dad during year 11 knew that I wasn't myself. Like I was being a bit of a bitch and <laughs> not following instructions. Like I'm usually pretty goody two shoes and I just wasn't behaving in my usual manner. I asked mum if I could drink and that was very unlike me as well. And so she started to realise. I like, do love on. that you're in year 11 and you're asking permission. <laughs> yes. I know there's a lot of people that will be listening that will laugh at that. <laughs> yes, I know. I'm, I'm an old fogey, don't worry, I know. And so they recognised something was wrong. So they sent me to a psychologist and I am such a big advocate. I feel like everyone benefits from seeing, like having someone in their corner the only problem was I had seen two or three psychologists before I found my psychologist, my go-to person. So they sent me to one lady who was great, but she ended up leaving the practice. And But she was the first person, Jack, who said, this is not okay at all. What you've gone through is emotional abuse. And she gave me that language and that feeling of like, Oh my God. It's not me. Someone, yes, yeah, someone's heard me and someone said, like, Tor, this is not a you problem. You didn't cause this. And that was at the very start of my healing journey. So it's it was incredibly just a powerful. Yeah. Yeah. And as a counselor now, I am very hot on as soon as I hear that anything is a bit untoward, giving that language, because I've counseled a lady who's about 55 and had been through lots of abuse when she was a child and then domestic violence as well and didn't realize that's what she was in and for me that breaks my heart because she's lived 55 years thinking she's the problem that's and she's not the problem yeah 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 it's all those people that chose to do the wrong thing they're the problem and they're the abusers so i'm really passionate in my work about labeling what's going on at the right time because mm. it can be really daunting to be like oh hang on i am a Victim of and it's physical a, it's and a very abuse. big realization. Yeah, there's a yeah. lot to process around that. Definitely. So, I ended up with this psychologist, and she helped me, and but also made me feel a bit like, oh God, you do need help, which was scary. I didn't like that she was. I feel that in my experience with psychologists, that lots of psychologists are quite not as relational. Like as a counselor, I like to be very relationship based. I will not touch trauma until we've got a safe Until connection you've and the got clients. That alliance. Yeah. 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 So I felt a bit like it was like, okay, let's do CBT to help you and let's do other things that, you know, tick the box to say you've fixed that. And I would kept saying to people, it's in me, get it out of me. Like I can feel it sitting in my chest and my stomach and no one really understood. And 
you know, this was in 2010. So I don't think that felt sense of the body and your nervous system and it's storing things was that common. And it wasn't common knowledge for the people I worked with. So I had one psych who left, another psych who left, and then I had a court psych who did like a assessment on me and then he left and I said to him, I am not seeing anybody else. I have relived this over and over again and I can't do it anymore. Like I just want to move forward. And he put me in touch with Rachel, who's like the best and most amazing person. And she said to me the first day I met her, I've had my kids, I love my job and I'm not going anywhere. Oh, and I was like, which is just what you needed to hear. Just what I needed. And <laughs> I tell my clients similar thing. <laughs> yeah. And when I had the day in court, we were prepping in the lead up because I was beside myself anxious. I was like, I don't want to mm. see her. I ended up being in like a witness protection box where I didn't have to actually go into the courtroom. And But then you're in there on your own. And I got a call the morning of the court case and it was Rachel and she's like, Tor, I can't find you. Where are you? And I was like, I'm so sorry. I don't have an appointment today. I remember I'm in court. And she was like, she was yeah, there. I'm here. And, oh, God, it honestly, it makes me teary thinking about it. She cared that much. Yeah. Yeah. And for me, sitting in that box that day, petrified, I had to face the person that had caused such awful, awful things. And because she was a psych, she was allowed to sit in the room. So she just sat there. I think I wanted her to hold my hand, but it was probably not appropriate. (laughs) And she was just there. And after she said, you did such a good job because when you're in that room on your own, there's no one else to tell you like, that was good or it was just in your mind and I felt that felt sense of the way that this person made me feel for all those years and I needed someone to ground me and be like no you did a good job you told your truth and that's all you can do and whatever the outcome is you did a great job I just needed that and she was there so she has been like my rock and recently she's not practicing so she I felt like I'd been broken up with because I was like you told me you wouldn't leave me all that rejection and and abandonment (laughs) yeah and I was proud of how I handled it and obviously she has her own life and it's not healthy to be reliant on her but I just felt like she was the first person in my life up until then that heard me and cared for me on a way that no other psychs had it was very much like I felt like she liked me you know and she thought I was a good person and I didn't but you should feel like that in therapy you should feel like your therapist likes you at the very least and it's a really important point I think to pick up on especially if anyone's listening and has had a bad experience with the therapist and I always say you know we're not a fit for everybody yeah and how important it is to keep going till you find your person. And you've just described an experience of going through three or four different people until you found your person. But when you find your person, it is so powerful, it's Mm -hmm. so healing, it's so supportive, and it will make an incredible difference to the path ahead. And I love that you kept going. Yes, and that's my biggest thing for clients I work with now and people listening keep going. Like it's not a you thing. If you go to someone and they don't, you don't gel with them. It's not because you're worthless or you're not good enough. It's literally that you don't bond or gel together. And it's not the therapist either. The therapist is not useless or a bad guy. It's just you're not a good fit and you've got to find your fit. 
Yeah. And I even say to clients when I have them like their first session, like don't book in yet, have a think about it because if I'm not the right person for you, please keep looking because when you do find your Rachel, it is the best experience ever. And even though she has moved on and I feel like I'm still grieving that relationship. (laughs) I think you are too. (laughs) I, I think so. I had two other psychologists after her that I tried and they were very much like lecturing me and you know, you shouldn't feel that way. And as soon as you put shouldn't in the sentence, I'm out mm. because I feel the way I feel and that's okay. And I've worked hard to learn that anything I feel and think is okay. Is okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I now have another counsellor, Sheila, who's like Rachel, just a warm, fuzzy person who is in your corner. So keep looking like that's seven, I think, in total. And I found two out of seven. So yeah. Keep looking Keep for the digging. Right They're there. They absolutely are out there. Yeah. I could talk to you forever, but <laughs> I, I do know that, you know, I'm taking up your time that you've generously given to us. Look, what I always like to know after I've heard the story is that, yeah. you know, and, and the whole idea of this podcast series is that beautiful young people have had really tough experiences, been at their rock bottom yeah. and have managed to work really hard because it, it is hard work. to come out of that and no one can do it for you. But when you get over to the other side and you see how far you've come and most of the people I've spoken to have had their difficult challenges in their adolescent years, as a young adult looking at 13, 14-year-old you, what would you tell yourself? So many things. I could write an essay, I think, for a (laughs) 13-year-old tour. Yeah, one of them being that, it's not your fault. That's my biggest thing because you carry that guilt around for a long time. And I feel guilty for my dad. I feel guilty for my brothers that I couldn't protect them in those moments. I feel guilty for the future people that are victim to this experience. So, but I've learned that I can't, I'm not in control of those things. And so that's one of the big things that it's not your fault and you can just control what you can control. And some people are assholes and some people will hurt you. And, and it's not a, reflection on who you are it's not because you're worthless or not good enough but me just saying that like if I told myself when I was 13 this I wouldn't have believed it so I think I would have just said also keep trying like keep walking the walk that you know is right and yeah and that experience that I went through although it was harrowing I feel wholeheartedly that it's led me to where I am and it's led me to help and empathize with people who have experienced this type of person and this type of abuse and I never judge anyone for how they feel and I feel like I'm such a victim's advocate in that sense like particularly for women with and children in domestic violence like I know how it feels to some level and I feel like if I could have told my 13-year-old self, like, this is really shit, but it's going to make you the person you are and the counsellor and one day parent and the sister and the partner and everything that you're going to be, just write it out and, you know, stick to what you feel is right because I knew it wasn't right and I wish I had have trusted that and had someone that educated me. Like in year 11 and 12, a topic around safe relationships or healthy relationships would have been a game changer for me. <laughs> yeah, because you would have heard, okay, that's what they've gone through and that's what I've experienced too and potentially could have saved a few years of heartache and soul-destroying incidents. So, But as you rightly yeah. say, you wouldn't be where you are today. 
Yeah. So those things always lead you there. Listen, I've I'm so appreciative of your time and of your story tour. I thank you. I just know that before too long you're going to be many other people's Rachel. So um, the very <laughs> best so. of luck with that. And you know, lucky will be the little person under the table that has you sitting there rubbing their back. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. And thank you for doing this. Had I have had a podcast to listen to when I was, you know, in those dark days, it would have helped just to know that, oh gosh, someone else feels this way. Because when you're a teen, you want to be normal, whatever normal is. And you'd feel so far from being a normal person. So thank you for doing all what you're doing. Oh, thank you. That's exactly why I'm doing it. (laughs) So I appreciate (laughs) it. Okay, Tor, thank you so much. Thank you. Bye now. Bye. Thank you for listening to Mind Rewind. Subscribe for free for future episodes. And if you're interested in sharing your own journey, please contact us at beanstalkconsulting.com.au. If you or someone you know needs crisis support, please phone Lifeline on 13 11 14.